1: Sleepy? Instant coffee. Need to sell your car fast? Car sales? Instant offer. That's right, sell your car the instant way and get it done with Australia's most trusted site
0: for cars. Welcome to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Hello, my name is Tim McMillan. Welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories brought to you by Dara and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments as the little things are everything. In this episode, you're going to meet someone who's had a truly adventurous life, a very Australian way of life, and one that few of us, I dare say, can truly comprehend. One that most of us might only have read about or seen on a screen. A story that starts in the harshest and most remote parts of the Australian outback. Uh, My guest became a lawyer and worked on the infamous Lindy Chamberlain case and later found herself working in Europe, mostly in Prague during a time of huge upheaval. Uh, in the Czech Republic. Also spent many years living in Western Australia as well. She's released a number of books uh, based on her life stories Uh, but for the time being we're going to hear those stories straight from the author herself. So hello and welcome to Tanya Heeslip. Hello Tanya, how are you?
2: Hello Tim, what a wonderful introduction, thank you.
1: It, it seems like a, a little amount of detail to encapsulate what has been a pretty adventurous life. So I'm sure I skipped over a lot there, but we'll try to fill in some of those blanks over the next hour or so.
2: Mm, thank you. Um,
1: let's go back to your early days. I'm fascinated by life in the outback. It, it almost seems so Australian and yet so quirky to people who, you know, grow up and live in a, in a big city. You grew up really, if, if there is a middle of nowhere in Australia, that's where you grew up, right? In the the outback of Northern Territory. Can you paint a a picture for us just what it was like there?
2: Central Australia, the heart of Australia and the heart of the outback. So this is the 60s and the early 70s and it is hundreds and hundreds of miles of nowhere. Uh, It's semi-arid, surrounded by arid witches defined as desert, hundreds of miles of nothing. So um, this land to me was all I knew and for bush kids it is all they know and it's this most wonderful playground. So you can imagine the former inland sea, which is what Central Australia is, red 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 dirt these magnificent old folded McDonald ranges gullies um, upside down creeks so all our creeks are white sand with the river running underneath uh, and you know uh, nine annual nine inch rainfall whatever that is now in, in millimeters not much uh, and it was cattle so that's that's what central Australia um Uh, industry there was no sheep that in in fact some people tried sheep in in the early days of pioneering but the dingoes soon put pay to that so cattle pole hereford which are a british breed but remarkably they do well in even 45 degrees summer and of course cope during the, the desert winters which at night are freezing and below zero. So this red wild land of white gum trees and huge blue skies, not dissimilar in some ways to the Pilbara, uh, just was a magic playground and we lived on horses, We spent all our childhood mustering cattle because the children on a cattle station are the reliable base workforce. The stockmen would come and go. Many of them were drifters, you know, back in those days. But we kids were there and so we had to learn to work cattle, work yards, fix fences, fix bores. We were little men doing big men's work and it was completely normal for school to be put aside and us to be sent out into stock camp for sometimes three weeks at, at a time because the priority was uh, was all around cattle and yeah. getting the cattle to market. So that really was the life with a little bit of school thrown in for luck.
1: <laughs> well, you obviously made the most of that brief amount of school that you had, Tanya. I have to ask, though, how on earth did your family end up trying to make something of this incredibly harsh terrain?
2: Oh, you know, that is such a good question. They were pioneers, I think, without realising it. So they were both from the Flinders Ranges in South Australia, which was sheep country, saltbush sheep country. Mum wanted adventure. She wanted to escape the conservative South Australian country town life that she'd grown up with. And so she went to Alice Springs and worked as a governess on a cattle station in 1957, which back then was like going to the other side of the world. And her mother wept and the entire town said she'd been murdered and never seen again. Anyhow, she just had the best time of her life. She loved the freedom, this And up there, the Territory was just full of people who'd come and everyone was accepted. They'd come from all parts of Australia. And so she went back and when Dad, uh, they were childhood sweethearts, when he persuaded her to marry him, she said, on the condition we go back to the Territory. So that, that was the deal, and um, what they did then was start looking for properties, but they were just a young couple. Uh, there was a 10-year drought in Central Australia in the late 50s and early 60s, and then miraculously this little block, which is what we lived on, came up, and it was going cheap because of the drought. And uh, They bought it on under the most... Um, Disadvantageous terms, three years of putting into the property. And at the end, if they hadn't met the government's conditions that would have been taken from them, they would have received nothing in return. It's a pastoral lease. So almost um, no security there whatsoever. But they came, age 26 by then, with three children under four, wow. took up this little, little block, and they still had sheep in South Australia. So for the first years of my life, we were shuttled sort of a thousand miles north and south um, while they made a go of this little block.
1: I understand Dad was quite a tough customer.
2: <laughs> Dad was very tough. He came from a long line of Irish peasants that had escaped the potato famine in Ireland and we were never allowed to forget uh, how lucky we all were that we had potatoes, we had food and they, his forebears came out and they took up land in South Australia and they were Methodists, Mm -hmm. so good God-fearing people and their motto was work, 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 work and church on Sunday. So we just grew up with this mantra of work and we knew nothing else. I mean, we didn't have holidays. Our if, if there were holidays, they were spent in the stock camp. And he walked around with a stock whip and he'd crack it with good effect. Kids would go running. <laughs> if we were misbehaving, just one look towards the stock whip would, would do the trick. He was a very tough man and he took on this land in the territory and everyone said he'd fail because he knew nothing of cattle and it was in the middle of a drought but he was a very astute businessman and he realized quickly he needed to learn how to work the land and then to innovate so he before many other people did he was putting in fences and he was putting in extra stockyards and sinking bores and always living on the edge of the mortgage of the overdraft so Money was constantly tight and, and there was just always that fear that we could lose everything. So he worked harder than anyone and drove us all.
1: You mentioned that you didn't get to spend a lot of time at school or <laughs> focus on your education and yet you've been held up as a bit of a a poster child, if you like, or a poster person for, uh, for School of the Air, which is a fantastic institution. In Australia, tell me how how it worked for you. I mean, how often did you actually get to sit down?
2: Mm, well, back when I was studying, and when, when we did get into the schoolroom, this little stone room just off the homestead, me, my sister, and my brother, and a long suffering governess, because mum was inside cooking beef for about twenty, thirty you know, stockman at any sitting. Um, we we did work when we studied. It was from seven thirty in the morning until one and that was correspondence lessons, and they came up on the GAN, the train from Adelaide, in fortnightly packs, and so the governors helped us. We learned our three R's, basically, you know, reading, writing, arithmetic in written form, and then we'd send them back. It might be, you know, a month, two months before we got the results back, and we'd eagerly wait to see if we would got a gold star or (laughs) dreaded the red pen um, and tried to remember what we'd learnt before. Uh, and that was a very good grounding because it covered everything, even if it was just in written form. But the exciting thing for half an hour each day was School of the Air. And even if we missed out on our correspondence lessons, I, in particular, almost always, unless I was on the back of a horse, got in front of that microphone because it just took me into this magical world, this other, other place of a, a voice of a teacher and the voice of students from other cattle stations. I, I didn't know what they looked like, but I painted faces around their voices. And it was pure theatre because we couldn't see each other and we didn't all have the same books, but the School of the Air teacher would you know, make us do our sums on uh, over the radio and then we'd, we'd read out of books and then sometimes she would... Um, post out to us all a play, and then we'd all take turns. So you'd have all these kids calling in through the static. Good morning, Mrs. Hodder. This is Tanya from Sierra Victoriform. I'm here with my poem. I can read you loud and clear. Over. There were lots of overs. You'd have all these kids' voices diving in through the static, and it was just the most wonderful way of engaging with something bigger than this very isolated world that I had at home because it was just my family and the stockman and our friends were the dogs and a joey and a little potty calf and our horses but this this gave me entree to another world and um, the teacher we had Mrs Hodder really encouraged me I think she saw that I was a very bookish child and that I longed for these outlets so every time mum went into town stores, which was once a month, she would go to School of the Air and Mrs. Hodder, the teacher, would give her a big box of books from the library and bring back to me. So I spent every spare moment I had with my nose in a School of the Air storybook.
1: And as I mentioned, a star graduate of School of the Air, um, apparently the the first person to go through a School of the Air program uh, and to go on and graduate uh, as a lawyer. And as a lawyer, one of your early big cases was working on the lindy chamberlain case which has just been one of the most enduring stories uh, in modern australian history i'll get you to talk us through your involvement in that tanya right after we take a break this is inspiring stories tanya heaslet is our special guest we'll be back with more in a moment
0: you're listening to inspiring stories for bowra and oday don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything
1: welcome back to inspiring stories we are speaking to published author Tanya Heslip about her many many life adventures Uh, Tanya I just uh, mentioned before the break you graduated from the school of air the first person to go through that program to go on to attain a law degree your first big case as a junior solicitor the Lindy Chamberlain case that's a big Mm -hmm. one
2: a huge one it 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 was such a, a contrast going from a school of the year student into something like i mean obviously there was a the, um there was secondary school and university but it seemed like a huge leap and at the same time it seemed entirely appropriate that my very first gig should be an event that had happened just south of Alice Springs where I grew up. I'd begun as a junior solicitor for the Crown. I was very homesick after boarding school and law school. I really wanted to come home. And uh, so I went to Darwin and this very unfortunate tourist fell off Airs Rock, as it was called, Benulara, and mm-hmm. died. And they found Lindy Chamberlain's. Uh, Azaria Chamberlain, sorry, his matinee jacket at, at, right next to the body. As a result, Lindy was let out of jail immediately because she'd always maintained Azaria was wearing this matinee jacket. So the Territory Government scrambled to pull together an inquiry and they needed you know, bodies on it. So they, the Crown got back the original team that had done the trial and the appeals, but the solicitor who'd run it had a whole raft of other Um, issues he was dealing with and he said I need a junior so they looked around who are the new kids on the block and I just started doing little court cases and I thought it was marvelous and I wasn't interested in going into some big inquiry that I didn't really understand and the solicitor general at the time said to me young lady if you don't do this I'll make sure you never practice in the territory again so (laughs) back then you know you didn't have much choice so for 18 months I was the junior instructing solicitor for the Crown as the inquiry uh, moved its way from Darwin to Alice to Ayers Rock, Ulara, and then on to Sydney and Melbourne and it was quite extraordinary because the Crown was defending its position in the sense it was it, it was on the back foot for the inquiry and I saw firsthand just what it was like to uh, have that precious question of justice um, trampled on. Uh, I th- it was. Uh, it's been very interesting um, in recent times with the with little Cleo and seeing how people's reactions can be divided about these kinds of issues. And we were like a travelling circus. The media was embedded. There were the squillion people supporting um, Lindy's team. She had a lot of support as well as her legal team. There was the Crown. uh, And this question of justice just went back and forth. And I realised as I was working 24-7 supporting, you know, this incredible legal team that, in fact, Lindy had been wrongly convicted. Mm. She should never have been convicted and the jury hadn't believed her and the forensic evidence was flawed um, combined, she was sent to jail and she never should have been. So that really opened my eyes to trial by media. It was the first trial by media in Australia, how easy it is for public opinion to be swayed um, by prejudice, and Lindy received every kind of prejudicial attack you could have imagined, Uh, and then the power of people who push for truth and justice. And, of course, her team were on the other side to us, but they bit by bit unravelled the Crown's case and demonstrated that Lindy and Michael should never have been convicted. So I learned the most enormous amount. I also made some wonderful friends with the journalists, and it was interesting. The media team were also split into sort of three camps really, pro, against and in the middle. And so I talked to them all and I learnt a lot. I must say I think that ruined me for general practice after that because working in that kind of pressure, and it was the first kind of inquiry of its kind, um, you know, going to wills and fence disputes with neighbours just didn't quite have the same um, adrenaline kick. But it was, it was extraordinary and I sat, I don't know, a couple of metres away from Lindy Chamberlain every single day for 18 months and she had enormous presence and a great sort of sense of reserve Uh, and um, I I would often pinch myself and think I'm here in the middle of this case that's changing history. History is really being um, changed before my eyes because it was clear Mm. that the law would have to change as a result.
1: Uh, Did you have a a sense of the enormity uh, of it at the time or is that something that's just sunk in in the many years since?
2: I think in the many in in the years since I've become increasingly aware of the enormity at the time I was just out Mm. I had my little yellow telegram from the Chief Minister of the Territory saying congratulations on being the first school of the student to graduate in law and I, I you know I was just full of a Adrenaline, myself, and the excitement of it all, and also I worked phenomenally hard because uh, the pressure on our team was enormous, and the amount of evidence we had to deal with was enormous. So much of my time was just focused on on the dailiness of ensuring I kept everything up to my masters. But it it, it did occur to me as time went on because I would listen and talk to the people on the other side and and um, to the media especially. And uh, so by the end, I think I had a real sense, but the enormity has come later.
1: Uh, do you know, Tony, I was uh, lucky enough to go and cover the the final uh, inquest for Lindy Chamberlain up in Darwin. I think, it, if my memory serves, about 2012 for, I suppose, what was a final declaration of innocence, if you like. So it's taken yes. long.
2: Yes, yes, that's, you know, decades Mm. Decades she um, has had to labour under these antiquated laws and the injustices that she suffered, Um, and you know, and the loss of her marriage and just it's it's unthinkable actually Mm. what she went through and how long it took for justice to be served.
1: Were you always absolutely convinced that uh, that the Chamberlains had nothing to do with it, if you don't mind me asking?
2: Well, growing up in the outback, I knew very well what dingoes could do. Mm. So we'd be in the stock camp and the dingoes would come and sniff around our camp at night. They'd be looking for food. Um, they, you know, they, they were hungry wild dogs and they'd scavenge. And we knew that there was a real problem at Ayers Rock um, because tourists were increasingly leaving litter and food around the campsites and the dingoes were coming into the campsites. So I, I knew without a doubt a dingo could do it. There yeah. was no doubt in my mind a dingo was capable of doing it.
1: Yeah. Let's fast forward now. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing there was a, a real sense of itchy feet. You've decided I'm going to say goodbye to Australia for a little while, pack my bags, I'm heading off to Europe. Was that your first big trip overseas?
2: It was, I'd wanted to go overseas ever since I'd read my School of the Air storybooks that Mrs. Boyd <laughs> sent me. All the Edith Blyton children having adventures you know, across meadows and down to Smugglers Cove and this place called England that I just thought sounded magical. Heidi going up her Swiss mountain. You know, these stories had presented to me an overseas continent and I was very hungry to visit. Um, but it took me a long time. I had to. I finished channel and I kept working. Then in nineteen eighty nine, um, I said, That's it, I'm going. I had a broken heart. There's nothing like a broken heart to <laughs> absolutely <laughs> catapult you into action and say, Right, I'm I'm heading off. So that's that's and I backpacked on my own all around Western Europe and my poor mother, I think back now. Um God, I had those little cards you could get Wait. at the back and you put it you'd go into the telephone box and you'd call reverse charges home and um, I think for Mum, it was just so so traumatic. But I had the most extraordinary adventure for that year and I, I I loved every bit of it. And I can I just say what happened at the end of it? Sure. So I was in a pub in London about to come home with a great friend of mine and we were having last drinks. You know, remember the Qantas um, Round the World ticket of mine, 12 months okay. had just about expired. And the television was on and there was this almighty ruckus. And I said, what is going on, Michael? And he said, oh, it's the Berlin Wall. And the Berlin Wall was falling and nobody had believed that could happen. And, again, it was that sense of history and legal systems are being rewritten before my eyes. And I said to Michael, we've got to get there and we got the next, we got two the two last seats on a flight full of media uh, into Berlin the next day, and I oh, right. saw with my own eyes people streaming through Checkpoint Charlie, the, the hugs, the the tears, the disbelief. I had an East German soldier hack me off a bit of wall. He was standing there with you know it's hobnail yeah. boots
1: with no it, job to do, nowhere like, to go. There are so many bits of the wall scattered around the world. Are you <laughs> sure? <laughs>
2: I know, so I got that and I thought, right. Now I've got to go back because I was totally broke. I've got to go back and do some more law and then as soon as I can, I want to see what's on the other side of this wall.
1: Yeah. And so you went back and of all places, you end up in Prague. I mean, it's a stunning place but it's not the first place that people think of going to. How on earth did you end up in Prague of all of of the options? (laughs)
2: Of all of the options, especially, this was 1994 that I went. You know, there was no Google. There was no computer. There was a map, you know, a, a map of this country I'd barely ever heard of. I I came back to Australia and I kept practising law and I kept dreaming about getting over that war and seeing what was on the other side. What had communism been like? And I must confess I'd probably watched one too many James Bond movies and I found the whole um idea of getting across to the other side just so close after the wall had fallen to see what was there, you know, very enticing. Long story short, I found a barrister who'd been there. He was in the territory. He got me a job in a little town called Selachany in the Czech Republic. Long story Mm -hmm. to how he knew it, but he said, I'll get you this job. And, And I said, yes, I would be teaching English to high school students. Now, I knew nothing about the Czech Republic or it was Czechoslovakia. It just became the Czech Republic when I went there in 94. I knew nothing about teaching. I knew nothing about teaching English, but I thought, this is an adventure. I can't say no. I will figure it out as, as I go. So I jumped and I ended up in this little town, which was something out of George Orwell's time. You know, time had stood still in this place and the communist regime was still alive and well even four years after it fallen uh, and I was treated with enormous suspicion on arrival, you know, a Westerner and the only Western person in the town. But I had an amazing time there in the end. The students really embraced me and I taught them lots of you know, Australian songs like Waltzing Matilda and uh, we, we had so much fun. And then through them, I found I ran into, by chance, two Czech Australians, Czech people who now lived in Australia, they'd returned because communism had fallen. They were just in a country town near me and they said, you've got to come to Prague. It's so beautiful. And I barely knew that Prague existed because I was in this, you know, settled Charney, this tiny place cut off from the rest of the world and they said, no, you must come. So they, they took me and that was the start of it. I thought... Oh, this is the most beautiful city I've ever seen, and it's straight out of my childhood storybooks. And I'm staying.
1: And and, and from all of those images that had formed in your mind uh, as a child, reading books and having this romantic picture of what Europe would be like, it sounds like Prague was the place that that lived up to those uh, those images that you'd had all through your childhood. Is that is that a fair thing?
2: That is absolutely right. I never actually thought such a thing could happen. but When I walked into Stadomieski-Namiesti, the old town square, I felt like Alice falling through the rabbit hole. It, it was the most extraordinary feeling. I've never experienced anything like it before or since. I felt like I was inside a Grimm's fairy tale or inside one of my storybooks. It, it was like a movie set. I thought this can't be real, but it was real, this you know, 11th century old city so um it it was all and more that i could have imagined so beautiful and
1: and, and you've dedicated one of your books uh, alice to prague um yeah. entirely on that adventure and it sounds magical so just before we go to another break tanya i have to ask why did you leave
2: very another broken heart <laughs> 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 all right, look i had this amazing time i taught Judges of the High Court and the Minister of Justice and the Head of International Relations English. I, I created this um, uh, legal English consultancy and I could have stayed there forever, but um, it was actually very difficult. I was broke The working as an expat there, even though I was working with the Czech people one-on-one. Um, in, I think I got $26 a month, something like that. Wow. Yeah, and I had a mortgage back in Australia and bit by bit it was not being paid. But I fell in love with a Czech man with blue eyes and he quoted poetry under the moon and played guitar and I thought I will stay here forever. But in the end I did come to realise that it probably wouldn't last. And and the city was a fairy tale and my life there was fairy tale in many respects. But I also realized I could never actually fully be that person that I'd trained to be back in Australia I could never fully practice law and the language was incredibly difficult so all those reasons came to a head after about two and a half years and I came back to Australia but I kept thinking I would return and I went back over and over again I've been back so many times I still love it almost as much as ever.
1: It's still a stunning place but broken broken hearted two good reasons I suppose (laughs) to uh, seek a new adventure. Uh, We'll we'll take another break, Tanya, if you don't mind. After that, um, we'll talk about your adventures in Western Australia, uh, another chapter uh, in your incredible life. This is Inspiring Stories. Tanya Heeslop is my special guest. Back with more after this.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. inspiring stories for Bower and O'Day don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything
1: welcome back to inspiring stories Tim McMillan is my name my special guest uh, is published author multiple times in Tanya Heaslip we're hearing about her many many uh, life adventures Uh, saying goodbye to Prague Tanya Um, sometime after that you find yourself for the next chapter in the wild west Western Australia. What brought you to Western Australia? Again, of all the places that you could seek new pastures around the world, Western Australia was it?
2: Yeah. Uh, Again, and I think this has happened throughout my life, the right person at the right time so I'd come back from Prague. I was very broken hearted. I, I was back into my old law firm um in the territory, listening to Smetana and Dvořák and the other beautiful Czech composers at night, and yeah. weeping for this <laughs> this land and this culture I left behind. And thinking, why am I back? You know, dealing with DUIs and you know all the other tiresome legal issues, sorting yeah. out people's problems. Uh, and I'm I met um a colleague who had done some work with me in the Territory on some land rights cases. So because I'd grown up there and I had that connection with the land and a lot of people on the land, uh, I, I also did a lot of um, land rights type work. And this colleague of mine had started um, in WMC in Perth and she said to me, look, um, you should come across to the West. There's lots of this work and um, it would be... a." you know, exciting. And I was so unsettled and I thought I do need a new adventure. So I went for three months. I just jumped again. Again, like This seems to comprise a lot of jumping without much forethought. I ended up on a couch in somebody's room in Inaloo, and then did this three-month contract at WMC assisting. It was just after the WIC decision came down. You might remember right. the High Court decision which looked at um, the interaction of pastoral Uh, rights and um, native title rights so because of my background uh, I worked on that and that contract ended but then um, essentially I was headhunted into what it's still the Chamber of Minerals and Energy to work on what was known as the week 10 point plan that was put forward by the Howard government at the time and um, WA was looking to shore up its interests so Just from the sublime to the ridiculous, suddenly I'm back on a plane every second week to Canberra, part of this lobbying team. So it it was a little similar to Chamberlain in the sense that suddenly it was involved the media and there was politics and it was law and it was a a whole new world and Canberra is its very own world, of course. So that was for three years and that was really um, just... Such a huge learning curve for me, but so interesting. And I met many, many, um, you know, my, big, minor, small, my explorers, prospectors along. And many of them said to me, why don't you go out on your own consulting? Because we are trying to do all these Native Title and heritage negotiations um, throughout WA, but we need someone on the ground for us, somebody who has an understanding of Aboriginal people who's grown up with them, who knows how the land systems work, and they said we'll we'll give you work, and so I again jumped, set up my own consultancy, and then for the next eleven years or so, maybe twelve years, um, consulted right through WA, um, and at, at the same time I'd met my husband, and he was in wine, so you couldn't have anything more geographically apart than. My husband in Margaret River in the wine industry, me travelling up to the Pilbara and the Kimberley and out to you know, Cal and the like, um, but it, it worked. And can, it, was, it gave me lots of flexibility and we did lots of really good, good work because I wanted my whole goal was to, I know it sounds a bit corny, but win-win outcomes, it, these negotiations on the land involving all these different stakeholders had to be respectful and had to mm. get outcomes that everyone could live with and that the Aboriginal groups, the Native title groups, were happy with. And they had some tough rep bodies representing them. So they, they again, were usually very tough negotiations, but we we did some good work. So that was great. Um, and then I got headhunted again, and this time... Um, to take on the role as General Counsel for Wright Prospecting, which
1: is... Yes, you're talking about some of the, the real heavyweights, as you know. Yeah. I mean, you, you're in the deep end there now, right?
2: Totally. I've gone from consulting to inside a, a very old WA family mining company partner to Hancock, but Hancock and Wright um, were in dispute over the division of the assets of Peter Wright and Lang Hancock, and so um, they brought me into head up basically an in house legal team for Wright prospecting. So that's what I did until um, about two thousand and seventeen. So it was about six six and a half years, mm. and I built an in house team. And one of the things I'm really proud of is that, as a female lawyer and having started in the eighties in law, I've experience firsthand it you know the misogyny and and just how tough it is being a female, especially a young female in the world of law. Law is adversarial, it's combative, it's there's no it's no place for whims. Um, and so there are a number of really, really smart young lawyers, female lawyers in top-tier law firms in Perth, and so many of them had hit that glass ceiling and were unhappy and thinking about leaving the law. And happily many of them came onto my team and so we built this this team which was fabulous and again it reminded me a little bit of channel because we did spend a lot of time flying between sydney and melbourne but particularly sydney and we had a lot of high court mm. um, matters so it's but been it's still, a it's still going um the thing i'm most proud of is that the team i put together all those years ago are still there um I, I did my, my bit and um, then for a number of reasons, mostly because my father was dying, I, um, we decided it was time to come back to ours. But my team is still there and still working on which is wonderful.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah, against those, those two enormous families uh, in the West Australian mining landscape, I, I'm not sure they'll ever settle all of their uh, disputes, but um, it keeps the courts busy anyway. Um, you've jumped the gun there a little bit, Tanya, because I'm just about up to the part where, uh, you feel the calling uh, to head back um, <laughs> to the Northern Territory. And I suppose looking at your your books, An Alice Girl Beyond Alice, Alice in Prague, the common thread through all of that uh, is Alice. So it's fitting, I suppose, that uh, that you are back there and that's where you've, uh, you've sat down and written uh, most of your work. So we'll take another break. After that, I'll get you to go through uh, the shift uh, back to where it all began. This is Inspiring Stories. Tanya Heaslet is our special guest. Back with more in just a moment.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything.
1: Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Uh, we are hearing uh, some of the many adventures uh, of author Tanya Heeslip. If you want to know more, she's got uh, three fantastic books, uh, An Alice Girl, Beyond Alice and Alice in Prague. Now, uh, Alice Springs, the town that uh, that you grew up near, uh, Tanya, uh, yes. it you back in the last few years. So tell us why.
2: Um, my father got cancer really horrible bone cancer and he was fading fast and he as I said earlier he was a very astute businessman he'd built up commercial properties as well as um, cattle properties and he wasn't able to manage it all because he was sick and it just felt like the right time to go home that perhaps I could use that law for something useful to assist him. And it also felt like the right time to leave right prospecting. I'd given six years and it was that was a 24-7 role. And uh, I felt like I'd done there everything that I could and I'd set up the team. So we moved back to Alice and there was something profoundly joyous for me about doing the full circle of <clears throat> returning to where it all began. I'd never properly lived back in Alice since I left it. Age 12 to head off to boarding school and then to law school and I'd always travelled and in part it was because I didn't know what I'd do back there but the time felt right, we moved back in that red land, those beautiful red ranges. Rocky was that all that
1: you remembered it being?
2: Yeah, it was everything. Mind you, I'd come, no matter where I lived, I, I flew back to Alice between one and three times a year minimum spent all my wages on airfares because I was forever homesick for that land mm. and I mean luckily the pilgrim places in the west uh, filled that need um, to a certain extent but there was nothing like flying home and then knowing I could stay I'd always gone home and then had to leave but this was coming home and um, so I took over dad's businesses and worked with him up until he died, which was a really long and horrible process. But it felt very good to be able to do that and to bring all my life skills, the commercial, legal, um, strategic skills that I'd learned along the way in, in the corporate world and from travelling um, to assist the family, but then I also thought this is my chance to record these stories that I'd been wanting to record for so long. Now, Alistair Prague, I'd been jotting, I'd been working away at that for about 15 years, the whole time um, that, well, not the whole, but uh, I started it in the West. I started in Margaret River, actually, Mm. and then I just kept working on it and I received constant rejections. I'd send it out and it would get rejected. But when I got home, I thought, right, this is the time and um, I found a fantastic publisher, well, Alan and Unwin, who said to me, look, what people really are interested in most readers in Australia because they live on the east coast is what the Outbacks really like. So that's the that's the story people really want to, to read. So I ended up getting a two-book deal, which is every author's dream mm. and I couldn't believe my luck. But that first book I then pulled I reworked so that it was all about growing up in Alice, going to Prague, a bit of a compare and contrast with all the stories of Prague and the love affair and just the beauty and the magic of of that world. And then that led me to my second book, An Alice Girl, which was about growing up in Central Australia um, up until age 12. And that's because my publisher had said, look, you think Central Europe is exotic, but again, for most people on the East Coast, Central Australia is just as exotic. So that story I wrote full of, you know, yarns and stories of all the characters that I'd grown up with in school of the Air, and the amazing times that I, I had. And it finished at 12 when I had to go to boarding school, which was a huge, Absolute wrench. All bush kids got sent away because there was no secondary school option available to us in the bush, and the territory government paid a subsidy to send, you know, bush kids away. So we knew we had to go, but. Boarding school was like going to Mars, coming <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> out of the freedom of the bush, you know, jeans and boots being the daily uniform to a tunic and tie and stone walls, concrete bells, rules. Um, that was inc- incredibly difficult. And what happened was after I wrote An Alice Girl, a lot of people then contacted me and said, we went to boarding school uh, during the 60s and 70s as, as well. We really want to read that story. So I went back to Alan Um and said, would you let me write That story and they said, yes, so the third book, Beyond Dallas, is a combination of um, the boarding school years with lashings of outback holiday adventures and teenage teenage, um, romances and all the wonderful things that um, happen during your coming of age years. So that's what that third book represents. And it's amazing. I think all the years working under pressure to Deadlines, enabled me to write really three books in three years, which I, given I'm still working full-time. Um, I,
1: that's pretty I good.
2: Things, <laughs> I haven't slept. I feel like I haven't slept in <laughs> years. That's what it feels like.
1: You've got mm. a bad toughness instilled in you then, that's for sure.
2: <laughs>
1: I, I,
2: think, I think so. There were a number of times I, I thought, I, I, this is ridiculous. I cannot do, do that. And then I remember Dad always said, you cannot give up. You cannot give up pushing the cattle back to the dam. You can't get halfway and give up because you will perish and the cattle will perish. You've got to get them back to water so they can be drafted and marketed and, you know, trucked off to mm. to, to market. So we grew up with this, you can never give up because if you, you just can't. It, it was never an option and Dad also used to say there's no such word as can't. So every time I thought, I don't think I can do this, um, I remember Dad and you can't give up. This getting the mob halfway back to the dam.
1: Yeah, well, what's next then? You've got three books uh, in pretty quick succession. Um, mm-hmm. There's no doubt this enduring fascination uh, with outback life. Uh, what's your ne- next book going to be about? I've got no, a number. No pressure.
2: <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I've got a number of ideas in mind, but I think um, I've got two books in mind. I really want to do. The first is still about the Czechs because I am I still have this enduring love affair for the Czech Republic and I'm I'm really interested in this question of dispossession and what it means to lose your home if you're forced to flee and then how do you make a home in two places and how do you sort of reconcile that? I've got a lot of stories from Czech people living in Australia that I've met that I'd like to weave together. But the other one um, I'm thinking about is fiction. I was thinking, you know, young female lawyer in the desert, um, and there'll be some mystery or some thriller, and it might, it will no doubt involve the mining industry and <laughs> probably cattle stations yeah, as well.
1: <laughs>
2: I think it will just all come in there. So that's what I'm thinking for the moment. But um, with with work taking up most of my time, I, I, it's still in the formative yeah. stages.
1: Percolating.
2: Yeah, yeah. percolating.
1: A joy to read uh, once it is on the shelves. Uh, Tanya, thank you so much for your time. Uh, some amazing adventures. And if you want to learn more about uh, Tanya slips uh, many adventures around the globe, particularly uh, in the outback of Australia and Alice Girl, Alice in Prague and Beyond Alice, uh, thank you so much for your time and uh, being part of Inspiring Stories. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you, Tim. I've loved every minute
1: of it. Excellent, thank you. You've been listening to Inspiring Stories brought to you by Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. We look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another inspiring story.
0: You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Bower and O'Day. Don't miss out on the little moments because the little things are everything. Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.